This episode features a discussion with author and cook Enrica Monzani. Enrica is the author of the blog A Small Kitchen in Genoa. Enrica has a new book out called Liguria in Cucina. In the book, she explores the culinary regions and foods of Genoa, the Italian Riviera, and the vast forest areas of Liguria. For links to recipes featured in this show and to find out more about Enrica, please reference our show notes. And on to the show. You're listening to Sharing the Flavor, a show that connects you with flavor and how to create. In this show, we connect you with recipes, cooking techniques, and show you a little bit of the science of cooking to help make you a successful cook so you can share flavor with your friends. I'm your host, Andy Gebby. In this episode, we go beyond pesto with author and cook Enrica Monzani. Liguria is much more than pesto and focaccia, so join us for a discussion of the flavors of Liguria. So in this episode, we have a wonderful topic. We're here to talk about the flavors of Liguria, uh, which is a region in northern Italy. And we have a very special guest with us here, too. She's the author of the blog A Small Kitchen in Genoa, and she's the author of Liguria in Cucina. Please welcome Enrica Enrica Monzani. Enrica, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Giovanni. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here with you and to talk about Ligurian cuisine with you. Well, it's going to be a fun show already. There's And I and I think the, thing, the neat thing about this for me is for Americans, Americans have a very specific perception of Genoa and Ligurian cuisine, which I think in many respects is dominated by what it's most famous for, which is pesto. But there's so much okay. more to Liguria oh. than, than, than pesto. So that's what we're here to educate people about today. <laughs> And we can ask her. There's so much yeah. more to pesto, so much more to pesto than what we think of as pesto. Exactly. Yeah. There's pesto in itself is a, it's a broad topic, right? And, and so yes, we could do a whole episode on pesto <laughs> itself. <laughs> and uh, let me start. There by is the much thing. beyond, much beyond pesto, as well as there is much beyond Cinque Terre in Liguria. It's so true, right? Because I mean, all, all you know, Americans know. Well, Cinque Terre is beautiful, right? But but I think you know, most Americans look at Cinque Terre, right? And then they, but they don't go beyond it, right? And and no. there's so much more, you know, to to Liguria. Yeah. So maybe so. With that in mind, uh, that so that one of the things you know, there's many things I love about the book. First of all, for those that are unfamiliar with the book, it's lovely. The photography is beautiful. It's a Thank unique. You. It's a unique <laughs> book in the fact that. It is in both Italian and English. So, so I find that wonderful in the fact that you can actually learn some Italian in the process by simply reading the book. Um, and two, it also does wine pairings. So Enrica, do you want to explain about the person you worked with to do the wine pairings for each and every yes. recipe in the book? Yes, definitely. I, I will be pleased to, to talk about Giovanni, Gianni. Uh, Gianni Bruzzone is the owner of uh, an amazing restaurant uh, in the uh, backcountry of Genova City. And the name is Bacicindukaru, which is an old uh, trattoria. And uh, he is one of the few who still cooks Ligurian cuisine properly. Genoese cuisine uh, since generations, they own this restaurant. 
uh, one of the few places where I really want to go to eat if I want to feel at home. And uh, and yeah, the, and then he is also sommelier, and uh, he has a wonderful cellar full of uh, uh, local wines, and not only local wines. And so I ask him. Uh, well, he's a kind of uh, master to me, a mentor to me. So I ask him to help me uh, with the matching of the wines, uh, uh, with the with the dishes, because I'm I'm not a sommelier, and I love drinking, but I'm not that good at pairing wine. So he did that job, and that. That was amazing because it was a tough job for him. So I'm very, very happy to to talk about him. He was a great help. And it's I think it's just a really unique idea that as you're reading through the recipe itself, right there in the lower left hand side is the wine you should be purchasing, right to to enjoy the food, which is I, I think I just thought was a great idea. So let's let's start with um, the, one of the things I well one of the things I like about the book is that you start you really talk a lot about in the in the first part of the book the regions of Liguria and how they influence cooking. Um, so Liguria, like we were mentioning before, isn't just Cinque Terre. It isn't just the coastline that everybody sees in the the pretty movies and postcards and things. It's more than that. So do you want to expand yes. upon that, Enrique? Yes, because um, yes, people knows especially in, in the U.S. but not just in the U.S. also Europe. Uh, they think about uh, Liguria as the Italian Riviera. So the place where people used to go uh, for swimming or on the holidays on the seaside. Uh, and Cinque Terre, of course, is, uh, is the most important, most uh, known place. Though Liguria is, uh, is also the woodiest region in Italy. Because <laughs> we are surrounded that, really. by, yes, we, ha- we have uh, the coastline and then we have woods, huge woods. Uh, and um, and so we have a very rich interland, a very rich countryside, mountainside though, because uh, we have mo- just mountains on the back, and uh, and and that is really the, I would say, the essence of Liguria, because uh, uh, that is where most of the people used to live. Let's say before the Second World War, when they then moved to, to work to the cities, of course, when we or industrialization of the of the comp- of the society but uh so the liguria inland is incredible and since it's not it's still, it's still most unknown uh it's really authentic so <laughs> the tourism there has not arrived yet uh also because uh, to get there is not that easy because there are very uh curvy uh streets and uh, narrow streets to get there and this uh, leaves the environment and the villages and even the people uh, as they were decades ago. So that's really a really charming, still really charming place. And sometimes I say that we are the European Bhutan, <laughs> that nobody knows us. <laughs> we should ask people to pay a ticket to get into the inland of Liguria to keep it as authentic as it is. Uh, but just joking. But in any case, we have this uh, countryside, which is um, really rich, especially from the uh, culinary point of view. That's uh, that's really um, a treasure cook cave, as you say. Uh, and this because also how, it is also due to the fact that Liguria is a, um, a thin uh, tongue of land uh, squeezed between the mountains and the sea. And it is divided into valleys. And so each valley from the west to the east 
each different valleys, which goes from the seaside to the mountainside, uh, has this different cross-contamination because we have valleys which goes to France, other which leads to Pedimont, other to Emilia-Romagna, other to Lombardy, other to Tuscany. So, and, and all mm. this makes uh, um, really, really in, uh, huge connections. And then there were the streets of the salt, so that the salt were uh, taken from the sea to the north, uh, and then from the north arrived in the south, uh, so in, on the coast, uh, uh, wheat and rice and cheese. So we had these huge exchanges of uh, uh, foods from the seaside and the mountainside, or the Pianura Padana on the back, since the centuries. And this also exchanged not only different kinds of food, but also different culinary techniques uh, and different uh, ways of, of cooking. So our region, for how it is shaped, is really a melting pot of different traditions, uh, really, uh, and really rich. And it really unknown, and still, and still unknown. <laughs> that, so that's should... that, because I didn't, I didn't know about it honestly. And it sounds like it's a you, you essentially have microclimates and microcultures, mm-hmm. right? Where you, you have... said that exactly, micro culinary heritages. Yeah. Each tiny valley has its own culinary uh, bubble, and with their food and with their uh, traditions and. Uh, and it's uh, it's really amazing. And I would say that this is one of the the Ligurian cuisine in the Italian panorama. I think is the richest in the number of recipes that you may have. <laughs> yeah, because they are yeah. unknown. <laughs> because they are unknown. Because you know just about pesto and focaccia and farinata and focaccia di recco maybe, uh, and that's it. Because yeah, we don't disclose that much of what we have. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're, it's almost like it's a secret, right? You're holding it in and you have all these things to offer, right? But people, it, it is, I mean, it's true in the United States. People understand, you know, pesto. They understand focaccia. Focaccia reco, maybe a few people, maybe a few people, right? But it's, uh, it's yeah, a lot of people don't simply don't know about it. While I was reading the book, one of, one of the things I really liked about it was I, I think I don't know if you're a history fan, but it but it certainly comes Indeed, across. So I, I am. It certainly comes across that you're a history fan because you're mentioning about things. I one am. of the things, one of the things I enjoyed reading about um, was well, well. First, let's talk about the pantry of Liguria because you you kind of you 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 touched on it a little bit with some of the uniqueness of the things coming from the forest, coming from the sea, coming from the mountains, right? So you you talk about it in your book and here and I'll and I'll bring up this section here on the pantry itself is so we talk about certainly the olive oil yeah. we talk we talk about uh, mushrooms which obviously are going to be coming from the forest uh, talking about the pignoli that you're getting from so from pine nuts from pizza. Um, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, and I apologize. The <laughs> preguin, is that correct? Prebujun. 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 So, <laughs> which is the the wild herbs, right? So si. it's so there's things that are kind of unique that are that are coming from the area because you have this kind of unique connection with you're getting the the fish, and I love how you talked about the Ligurian Sea being very miserly, right? Only giving you certain bluefish, right? <laughs> that you're allowed to pull from the, the anchovies. Yeah, 
So you have the anchovies from the sea, you have, and then you have the salt, right? With the, which is coming from that too. And then you have the forest and then you have uh, Ligurian olive oil. The thing that, and I guess we, maybe we could transition here to olive oil. There were some really, really interesting things about olive oil that I didn't know that are coming from here, which specifically the varietals of olive oil that come from Liguri, mm-hmm. which I simply didn't know before. So do you want to maybe touch on that a little bit, Enrique? Um, the variety of olives we have in Liguria, mainly on the West, the most uh, known are Tajaska olives. And uh, these olives uh, were uh, planted in the West of Liguria uh, around the uh, 1100 by Benedictine monks. And they were, um, and they became the main uh, cultivation around the centuries. And uh, the cultivation of olive oil really changed the uh, landscape of Liguria because due to the cultivation of our olive trees, uh, the Ligurian created these so famous uh, terraced stone terraces. Uh, so they um, built they they built land to grow olive oils from the mountains. So and this was an, a huge uh, human masterpiece and human work. Um, and so Tajaska olives are special because they are tiny. They are they have different colors. So they are uh, from they vary from green to brown to dark, and um, and they are extremely uh, tasty. And they are a variety of olives that you can e- use uh, both for doing olive oil and for eating. So you can also put in uh, brine and uh, and eat, which is not something that all the varieties of olives has as uh, as they are. And so jointly with olive oil, we have, we have also uh, the olive pate and mm-hmm. uh, all these other different products based on olives, which are not just our olive oil. And the special thing about Tajaska olive also is that they give uh, an olive oil, which is very mild, mild and fruity. I would say um, one of the mildest in, uh, in Italy, they are not, it is not too spicy. Sometimes it is spicy and bitter when it's young, freshly uh, milled, uh, but it loses its spiciness quite easily. And what remains is a flavory and sometimes the smell of our olive oil is the smell of artichoke. Oh, so really? you have this, uh, yes, it smells artichokes, fresh artichokes. That's important. And, um, and olive oil was the uh, source of fat that we have at our disposal. Uh, and this is uh, the our traditional seasoning but not just for seasoning but also for cooking mm-hmm. though it was it has always been we have to say very expensive and uh, even in the past so we traditionally we do not use too much <laughs> of extra virgin olive oil so we even in the peasants family where they have olive oil they try to be very uh, to to save for that so to be very careful in using that I should maybe interlude for one quick second. I think yeah. what people in the United States don't know is that in Liguria, because of its geography, they're not what we call hills. They're very steep. Yeah. Actually, actually, when you're standing on them, that's dramatic if you're on the seaside. Because from Recco, for example, you get this marble. First, you get the sense, and it's a very steep, um, in, even in the balance, are very steep toward the rivers. So they had to terrace yeah, exactly. very heavily. Yeah. Uh, um, 
in order to make anything and to make wine make to make anything See, I mean, or it's, even it's, even it's, a green uh, green uh, green gardens so you say vegetable gardens so isn't it part of unesco already or not not yet is that is it part of unesco as yet for um, no. unesco ancora no no it's not, it's not yet no you mean because it was you mean, proposed to be part see, of also, the terrace also because, because the, the terraces the stone terraces is really a huge work of the humanity yes. and it is uh, the all the terraces if you count them are far longer than the chinese wall really? so because, uh, see see because they they it, it, well you, you could you, maybe you not, you do not notice them because of course they sometimes they are hidden by the vegetation and by, by, by the trees so you, you, you don't count uh, feel how many of these stone terraces are there but all our inland is made of these uh, terraces you a huge human work and Giovanni, that's what you're wondering if that was part of a UNESCO site type of thing. I think it was been proposed as such. I didn't know yeah. if it actually has become one as yet or not, because it effectively know. is spectacular. It's a spectacular place. It's not well known, effectively. Mm-hmm. I discovered it by chance because I was I lived for a year north of, of Genoa, not in Sano. And um, when you get, go for a drive, uh, and it's is something very pleasurable to do, okay. especially if you uh, there. Are, they are very nice to see these uh, stone terraces if you travel in the inland of Imperia, because Imperia can be considered the capital of olive oil. Uh, there, there are also big uh, olive oil makers like Carli or Raineri, oh, so they big, big, big productions. And in the in Valle Impero, which is the the valley in the back of Imperia, there uh, they still produce a lot of olive oil. And there are places like Lucinasco, for example, which are, which is also called the uh, the village of the extra virgin olive oil, mm. uh, and the, and the street up to Lucinasco because Valempero is this uh, narrow alley with all the tiny uh, medieval villages on the top of the hills. So you have to uh, to drive uphill to get to these uh, tiny villages, and the, all the streets to get up to them are in between the the stone terraces. And there, it's really amazing because you have just the stone terraces, stone walls, no houses, but the villages are at the top and you have all these olive trees. This is really amazing place where to um, experience uh, this land, this landscape. So Lucinasco. Lucinasco is fantastic. Wonderful place where to go. That That is amazing. I never knew that, I mean, I... Looking at pictures, you could see the terraces, but I never knew that that detail behind it them being such a uh, such a engineering achievement, right? Of of being a human achievement to be able to make them. That's really interesting. Well, I mean, olive oil is very important. In uh, well, it, when you were mentioning before about the the, it's a uh, as I was reading the book, it's a, it's a very important source of fat, right? In the in the diet of Ligurians. Because of, there isn't a great deal of livestock, right? That is, that is, uh, at least that's what I was reading. That there's not a lot, of, like there's not as much uh, animal fat that is in the diet si. as much as there is olive oil. See, there are a few families in the countryside had their pork, uh, which they used to slaughter at the end of the year, and of course they had some lard from the pork because the, you can use and and with the meat they made charcuteries. Um, and of course, also uh, some amount of lard was used for, uh, for for frying or for for seasoning, but that, not that much. 
I mean, it really depends on uh, on the on how rich you were to have uh, how many pores you can afford, and uh, and of course, and we we do not have butter because we uh, whilst some families may have pores or. Uh, um, uh, poultry or rabbits or so tiny animals in the of the farm animals uh, we don't have um, uh, fields for farming cows because we are mm -hmm. squeezed between the mountains and the sea and so we have not that big production of milk and therefore no cheeses and therefore no no butter <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and this is why uh, but of course they produce kind some some cheese we had some local production of cheese even traditionally but not not enough to become part of the everyday diet of the of the person in the past of course that makes sense well one of the so one of the things that's that well this this is the dish that everybody knows right from from jenna which is pesto um mm -hmm. but pesto is complicated right pesto i think we have i think most people have a very i don't know very uh, shallow view of pesto. There's all kinds of varietals uh, to it, but there. But you mentioned in the book there's a very there's a very specific way to make pesto correctly. Um, <laughs> so that 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 I would like to hear about. And and I thought what was also outstanding in the book is is for those that don't have a mortar and pestle, you are actually giving them a very interesting approach to do it with a blender, which I never read read about before. So so please okay. illuminate us. <laughs> Okay, of, of course, uh, pesto is a family affair. So each family has their own recipe and their own way of doing that. And uh, and of course, making pesto in, in the mortar is not an everyday activity, unless you have to teach cooking classes and, uh, and teach how to make pesto in the mortar or show off with friends and you want to make a great pesto. Because the truth is that pesto made in the mortar Basil paste, our paste made in the mortar, is far better than the one made in the blender mm -hmm. for many reasons, uh, especially because when you work the, the, the paste in the mortar, you really, exactly, you lacerate the leaves and you do not produce uh, uh, heat. Mm -hmm. uh, so you let the essential oils get out of the leaves uh, uh, better without compromising the flavor uh, of the basil. When you use the blender, the blades of the blender just cut the leaves and when they turn, they generate heat, and the heat oxidizes the, the basil leaves, which compromise the essential oils. So making the pesto in the blender uh, gives you a darker pesto, darker green pesto, and sometimes it may affect the, uh, uh, the, um, the freshness of the flavor. Though I have a suggestion to do, uh, and one of my suggestions is if you, make, if you do pesto in the blender, which, I, which is what I do when I have to prepare it in batches for my family, is to put the extra virgin olive oil in the fridge before you use it. Ah, that's so a great you, idea. Use it, you use it cold and you lower dramatically the uh, temperature of your sauce. And so you a compensate idea. a little bit the, um, the, uh, the heat from the, from the blades. Also, you have to use the pulse mode, mm -hmm. which is another suggestion. Um, and then another suggestion I do to work the pesto in, in the blender is not to use all the oil at the beginning, but to split the oil and use just a few amount at the beginning just to make um, a sauce, that, a paste that collects the garlic and the pine nuts and then uh, the basil and, and then the cheeses. But the greatest amount of oil 
I suggest to add it later on when you have finished the, let's say, the basil paste. And do not um, mix it with the blender, but just with a spoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you gently mix it in with a spoon. And so you let the oil act as a, as a vehicle uh, to encapsulate the essential oils of basil for a while. So you do not emulsify the oil with the other liquids that already are in the, in the, in the paste, like the water of the basil. And, and you let the oil emulsify and uh, let the oil encapsulate all the flavors. And then you will emulsify it with the pasta boiling water just before uh, seasoning the pasta. But you let it rest for a while like this. This is my suggestion. Thank you very much. For, though I use, I use a pesto, nevertheless, the notion obvious, so obvious, why the heck didn't we think about it before? Putting the olive oil in the fridge is a great idea. It really is. Uh, in, the, in the US, we don't know, basil is a very volatile herb. Yeah. And that's why you tend to not put things in, for example, you don't put things in while it's cooking. You put it in after you finish, after you've turned off the heat, usually. Mm -hmm. The thing which I think Arika, she's been in the United States, says that the United States has a little problem regarding basil. I know. Because we get the African stuff, which has, know. you know, they're. They're big as maple trees, they are, they're and they're, huge. they're dark green, and they're already bitter. <laughs> so if they get a little bit more bitter, you can't even tell. I know. In, in, in Genoa, they have they have these marvelous, sweet, small-leaved green things that you've got to be there, unfortunately, uh, or, or find somebody in the United States that has the seeds. Them. <laughs> no, you have you you must uh, buy you, you must buy the seeds because our basil is is a special variety of basil. There are more than sixty varieties of basil in the world. So one of them is the Genoese basil. So that's a variety. And of course, we also harvest it when it is small and tiny and tender, just for the purpose of making pesto. But another suggestion I can do, I can give you, is to remove carefully the stem, because the stem of the basil leaves yeah. is a very bitter and watery. So carefully remove the stem from the leaves when it's a meditational work, because it takes some time to do it properly. But uh, that really makes the difference. So I can wow. taste That's if the pesto idea. is made with the stem or without, <laughs> because I, I know that that gives a special bitterness to the pesto. So if your pesto is already bitter, your basil is already bitter, skip the stems completely. <laughs> Don't be lazy and skip the stems. Forgive me for intervening, Andy. This is great stuff. It really is. That, I mean, it's outstanding. You, you can look at a thousand recipe books, and I didn't know it either. Andy knows that though I'm not in the Gurian recipes, and you can read a thousand recipes. You will not hear either one first. <laughs> Put your damn oil because no one's going to use the best. So I do because I'm masochistic. Yeah, yeah. You've got to have eight people to do it or something. Otherwise I mean, it's, it's a, the pesto. I mean, like the, the mortar and pesto, like you mentioned, Enrique, it's for show, right? It's, I mean, no, no, no. It, it makes really, a difference. It, really it makes, makes a difference. It really makes a difference. It's a tough work. I mean, you well, can, uh, you that's can what work I meant to say is that it, it's, 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 it's part of how I say it. It's to, it's to really put the, the absolute best pesto you can out there. Sí. What I meant to say is it's work. It's a, it's a lot of work to do. Yes, it's a lot of work. Especially if you don't do that like I do three or four times a week, no, a <laughs> couple of times a week, and now I'm very quick and making pesto with porta. But I mean, that's a, no, that's a, that's a work, especially if you have to make it for many people, because in the world, the more that you have to work it for people, let's say, like something like this, you cannot prepare it in batches or with the mortar. The, the other thing from your book, because you mentioned about the oil, the other thing that was another fascinating tip is to put your blender's jug and blades in the freezer ah, to cool. Yes, that was really, yes, that's sure. a really cool idea. See, see, see. That's, uh, that's another idea. Put them in beforehand in the freezer. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, is a, there are many tricks for making a great pesto. <laughs> <laughs> there truly are. Yeah, yeah, this could be a three-hour broadcast just on pesto. Thank you very much for those tips. Yes, because there is also stuff. all the history of pesto, so we should put an episode on that. <laughs> I was just well, we have we have to mention just just a teeny bit about it because you you mentioned in the book that it that it dates back to the 1800s, right? It's relatively yeah. young, yeah, but there's exactly. but there's an older sauce. The this is the That's kind it. of the grandfather or the parent sauce, salsa de noche, right? Which is much more ancient. Uh, yes, they are not. They are not parents let's say they are lower where you say far relatives no the both of them are made in the mortar so because in the past of course mortar was the only kitchen tool one of the few kitchen tools of the of the cooks joined with knives um salsa di noci uh but it's a it's a yes let's say it's a she is a sister now uh because it's made with nuts and um and, and cheese and oil, and so that I would say that the pattern uh, is very similar to that of pesto, though we have no greens in the salsa di noci, but few uh, uh, marginal leaves. Salsa di noci is uh, actually what it is. It's a thick sauce made of walnuts, so walnuts, uh, and they are beaten in the mortar or in the blender, and then you add um, breadcrumbs, the sponge of a bread soaked in milk, and then parmesan cheese, and um, garlic, and uh, salt, and then a few uh, a pine nuts, few pine nuts, and few marjoram uh, leaves of fresh marjoram. And then you beat everything, or you blend everything, or whatever, and you get this thick sauce. And then you water it down with, um, uh, you water it down with the pasta water, always, and then you get the creamy sauce, and then you season your pasta or pansotti, because pansotti are the uh, traditional pansotti. stuffed pasta of Liguria, and they are uh, actually more or less of the Genoa area and the east part of Liguria, and they are stuffed with greens, especially with prebujun, so the mix mm -hmm. of wild herbs picked in the fields. So they are green uh, uh, stuffed pasta, usually seasoned with walnut sauce. That sounds incredible. I, I I actually had the opportunity to have. Um, it was here in the United States. I went to a restaurant that actually the owner was from Liguria, and he and I had you know uh, salsa di noci, and it was it's just out of this world, right? When you have it, it's 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 absolutely wonderful. And the um, what I was reading about in the book was the uh, let me see here. So this is going back to to pesto is the silk handkerchief pasta approach, si. the layering approach. So can you tell people a little bit about that? See, si, uh, mandili de sea. Mandili de sea is a traditional pasta that we have in Genova. It's a very old shape of pasta. They are uh, lasagnas, uh, though, uh, and they are called mandili de sea because in, uh, in dialect it means silk handkerchiefs because they have the shape of uh, an silk handkerchiefs, so uh, they, they were not that big, these silk handkerchiefs, or the man handkerchief, I say, which they are, uh, let's say, five inches per, per, uh, per, 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 per side, and so they are big for, for lasagna, and they are very, very thin, and the tradition uh, is to uh, boil them one after the other in the pan, so you boil just one after the other, and then in between one and the other, you put some pesto, 
And so you layer one lasagna on the other with some with few, few pesto on it, and then you serve it. And, and this is something that was common in the families. Uh, it's not so easy to find them in restaurants, though there are some restaurants that knows how good they are, so they offer them to their clients. Uh, and they, for, to me, they are the best way of eating pasta pesto, uh, jointly with gnocchi, <laughs> which I love, potato gnocchi. But they are not only Ligurians, so we have them uh, all around Italy. But mandili de sea, that they are fantastic. Anche testaroli, bro. What were you saying, Giovanni? No, just an, uh, another uh, Shape of form pasta. which they have in the south, the south of Liguria, which is a really ancient, actually probably the first pasta, sí. which is kind of like a, 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 a thick pancake. And it's if it's done well and fresh, it has a that's kind of a nutty extra to it, which then you add to the pesto, and it's kind of it's a it's a an odd refinement, and it seems like reading a mix of several centuries all at once. See, that's a cross-border recipe because we share it with uh, with Tuscany. That uh, that's typical of Lunigiana. So from uh, in between Liguria and Tuscany, they they made testaroli quite often. So that that's the place where they were born. So for our next topic, this is this actually I think this is another ancient thing, but this is actually probably a um, I don't know what you would call kind of a high achievement um, is chickpea flour, um, and so I think this chickpea chickpea flour or did it originate from Genoa or did there was no. this where did, where did no, it originate? Chickpea flour and uh, so flour made with chickpeas is something that is widespread all over the Mediterranean Sea since. Uh, Ever, I would say, since the Roman area. So there are many uh, cities on fa- uh, facing the Mediterranean seas that has recipes with chickpea flour. Uh, so this is not just uh, our local product. Truth is that different places, different uh, uh, cities, w- prepare different recipes with the with the ch- with chickpea flour. Uh, and therefore, in Genova, uh, we prepare farinata which is our, uh, I would say, one of the most iconic street food of the city. And uh, farinata is, again, uh, it's a, a big pancake. <laughs> we could say that. <laughs> it is made just with chickpea flour and water. You make this better, uh, very liquid better, and then you let it rest for at least for eight hours so that the flour absorbs very well the water and becomes very m- much more um, sweet. And then we pour it in the pan with uh, some oil and salt and we bake it in the oven. Traditionally, it was baked in a wood oven in very big copper pans, very thin and very wide. Um, and you bake it, and and you and it is very thin, <coughs> less than one one centimeter, so one fourth of inch, something like that. Uh, and then when you take it out, it's very crispy outside, though still moist inside. And we have it. Uh, as street food, we have it. We eat it with our hands, and uh, we can use eat it for an appetizer. We can eat it as a main course. It's a vegan main course, mm-hmm. <laughs> very popular. Could be very popular. And so farinata is this, and then with the with always with the chickpea flour, we prepare panissa, and panissa instead is a kind of polenta. So we make uh, a kind of uh, thick polenta with chickpea flour and water. So we let it slow cook for more than an hour, stirring constantly. And then we have this polenta that, and we pour it in plates and we let it cool down. 
when it is cold, it becomes um, firm and, uh, and we cut it in pieces. And then once it is cut into pieces, we either season it with olive oil and um, fresh, uh, fresh onions and pepper and lemon, and we make a salad out of it, fresh salad, sometimes also saute, uh, or we deep fry them and we have panisette. And they looks like French fries, exactly like French fries, fries, but there is no potato inside, but chickpea flour. And they are another typical street food, though fries, fried street food. I saw, I saw it. Looks, it looks fantastic, actually. What would be what would be the taste of the fried chickpea? What would, as, does it have kind of a... It's a nutty it? taste. It's a nutty taste. Some, um, it, it remembers uh, sometimes, um, yes, pancakes, because it is sweet. It's hmm. not... Uh, so it's not that sweet, of course, because it's a savory course, but really pleasant. So the uh, um, when we talked a little bit about chickpea flour, and you mentioned previously about um, pasta dishes that you would make with pesto, one of the things that I was reading in the book that I, I was, and I know, Giovanni, we've talked a lot about how pasta is utterly unique, than how you make pasta is different from region to region in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and some some use egg, right? And some don't use egg. Um, like when we were, I think we were talking about Abruzzo uh, Giovanni, you know, very little egg. Um, but this, what I found was interesting was the use of white wine in mm-hmm. pasta. So I never knew that. Maybe Giovanni, I think you, you certainly know more about that. But Enrica, tell us a little bit about the unique pasta of uh, Blue Green. I see. Liguria is uh, one of those regions that, that do make that makes a very uh, light pasta, fresh pasta. So, whereas other uh, regions um, use eggs and flour, and that's it. Uh, the part we use few few or no eggs in the flour, uh, and add water. And jointly with water, uh, we add uh, white wine. And white wine is used. Uh, for, for giving elasticity to the dough, it is that, that it gives some elasticity, and also because it gives flavor to the dough and cover a little bit the taste of F, fresh egg. So the the pasta, is, the result is very uh, elastic and light and uh, fragrant fresh pasta. Very neat. Yeah, so, so when you say fragrant, does it have like the fragrance from the, of the wine? From of the, the wine. wine. See, you can also taste when you taste pasta. You can perceive sometimes the the flavor of wine, and this the reason. And this is why when you do fresh pasta with wine, always use a great white wine. Never scrape <laughs> white wine <laughs> because what you put in your dish is what you get at the end. So, and that's also a good opportunity oh. to drink whilst cooking. So, <laughs> open a good bottle of wine <laughs> all the time. And Andy, if you can, you can you can kind of imagine it. Imagine the difference if you were to make a light, uh, slightly acidic but a more fragrant noodle. If you're making those lasagna small ones, and compare that with a good pesto, and now compare the flavor in your mouth if you make it with an egg noodle. Yeah, absolutely. It's gonna be about ten you, you, you want to taste more of the basil. You don't want to taste the egg. You 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 say that also because usually our seasonings. Uh, traditionally are not heavy 
So it's difficult to have a meat sauce, but we have, we have a great meat sauce, uh, tuku. But usually our seasoning are herby, nutty, uh, light, and so they must remain the main hero of the plate. So pasta should be subtle and delicate and just fragrant, but not that much. Because our cuisine is light, is very light uh, compared to our cuisines in Italy. So we use few fats, few meat. And so this is a characteristic of, uh, of the Ligurian cuisine. I, I can imagine the flavor difference of like the egg not overpowering the pesto, right? And you're, you're actually tasting a very light pasta and it's really elevating the pesto and making it the star in the process. So, um, so another famous dish that um, pretty much everybody in the United States knows comes from Genoa is focaccia. Um, it's, it's, it's hugely known, but I, I think that, and we, and we, we covered this. We did. We did a show on Cinque Terre. And we talked. To, we talked. To, we talked about focaccia. I learned. I learned how to make focaccia. But there's so many varieties of focaccia. There's so many varieties of flat. These flat breads, right? That that are that are made. That um, I think probably most Americans know focaccia Gen- uh, genovese. Genovese. You know, but they don't know about the other ones, right? They. And there was there was one even that had I think there was sardines on it too that looked amazing. Caldenaida. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a fo- that, that's a kind of focaccia. Okay, we have focaccia. Focaccia is well, focaccia genovese is the thin one with the deep deep dimples, the shining of oil, and uh, and that's the quite famous also thanks to Ta- Sami Nozrat who mentioned that in her book and in her episodes in her shows. Uh, and that is our which is a bread like product. That's kind of bread, very thin, different from the other focaccias in Italy, which are thicker. Our is very thin. That's the special thing about our focaccia. Uh, the second most famous focaccia Genovese, this one, it has a ver- um, another version is with onions on top, with stewed onions. So the recipe is the same, but on top we put sometimes fresh, sometimes stew white onions, and that is the second most eaten focaccia in Genova. Uh, and these two are the main focaccias we have, bread like then there are some some bakeries uh season focaccia in different ways so they put some olives on top some rosemary uh some sage or they put uh cherry tomatoes on top but these are not traditional so this is for selling a different products sure. for uh, so for the customers but they are not uh special dishes uh, then we have the one you saw in, in the, the book, that is Sardenaira. And Sardenaira, it, it, it is not a focaccia, that's a pizza, it's a pizza bread. So it's a dough, uh, it's a bread dough. And on top of it, uh, dough thin, like a focaccia. And on top of it, we, we pour uh, tomato and salted anchovies and garlic and um, capers and rosemary and um, oregano. And that is traditional of uh, of the West Italian Riviera, so Ventimiglia and Imperia in that area. They do not call it focaccia. They call it, uh, if not sardenaira, they call it torta. (laughs) So you don't have to call it focaccia, you don't have to call it pizza. 
because that is another another thing. And um, and then we have other preparation which are called focacce, though they are not bread-like products. And the misleading fact is that in that in the past the focaccia was something baked in the oven sometimes. So we have, for example, focaccia al formaggio di recco, which is not bread. That's a savory pie. So it's made with an unleavened dough, just made with flour and water and oil that we need for a very long time to make it stretchy. And then we stretch it very thin. And in between a layer and the other, we put a special cheese, which is called crescenza. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, the one produced or stracchino, same, which usually was produced in the back country of Recco. And that that is called focaccia di Recco, but it is not a focaccia. It's a, a cheese pie, a cheese savory pie. No uh, uh, raising periods. So you just prepare it and bake it. And this is amazing. And uh, this is one of the few IGP products of Liguria. This means that it's a protected uh, products of uh, geographical identification. So that is certification from the Euro European Union. And there are just four places that can legally produce focaccia di Recco, which are, of course, Recco, Camogli, and then uh, um, Uscio e Aveno, which are two villages on the, on the countryside, on the back, the hills on the back. Uh, and there they produce the traditional focaccia di Recco. Then in other part of Liguria, they produce focaccia al formaggio, cioè cheese focaccia, like Recco, Otherwise, and they cannot say focaccia di Recco, otherwise they get a fine. So they try to mock the name or pretend that the name is different because uh, it is really protected. But focaccia di Recco is fantastic. To me, it's one of the best preparation ever. And then we have... Oh, oh, sorry. No, sorry. And then there are other no, focaccia no, no, go, like go, go, focaccette di Megli, for example, that are in my, in my book. There are the, the same version of focaccia al formaggio, though they are not baked, but they are fried. Even better. <laughs> and then we have other, they are not in the book, but we have uh, uh, other different focaccia, which maybe are made with potatoes. Or so in, in the in the batter, some are fried, some not. So focaccia means many things here. It's, it's, a, it's a whole diverse topic unto itself. Go ahead, Giovanni. What were you going to mention? No, I would like someday to be able to take you actually, Andy, there, because I discovered focaccia directo by chance alone in Recco. Just, yeah. And you put it in your mouth, and in Italy we see. I discovered America uh, uh, because it's it's up, it's orgasmically good. It, it takes you to another place. If you've never had it before, it's effectively sort of a, a shattering experience. It, it looked like I. Unfortunately, finding it well done is not necessarily easy. And uh, even though she knows you can only make it there, I can go downstairs and go for 100 meters, and I'll find a pizzeria that will say focaccio directo. And it's nothing to do with focaccia today. <laughs> I, I remember seeing like, uh, or I think it was a link in our previous episode from uh, Italia Squisita that they were showing it being made in Recco. And this like, it looked like an enormous copper uh, structure. And it just looked incredible. Right? When, they were, when they were putting the uh, crescenta cheese on it and just, I can't even imagine what it tastes like. It, it, it just looked unbelievable. Also, you need, you need good crescenza, and they probably make it there. You need, a good, you need a good cheese. Mm -hmm. mm. By the way, some, there are some producers of crescenza in the U.S. as well. So if you 
if you mm. look online and um, I think I, th there are maybe some of them. And unless you go to Italy or some uh, Italian stores where they import Italian cheeses, um, you have to find a stracchino or a, a crescenza, of course, because the cheese is important of essence because it needs to be melted. In Philadelphia. It needs to be melted properly without cooking. And so mm -hmm. when you cut the, 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 you cut the in slices, they should leak everywhere. And uh, so, see, the cheese is uh, mandatory. It's sort of like an up upmarket version. We've seen that in states of 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 those things we're used to Italian cooking in this from the south. We have really heavy cheeses that have been fried up, and they're very good and very delicious. Now imagine you're in a in a in a three star Michelin restaurant sort of thing. It it's it's several steps up. Yeah. <laughs> As a flavor. Well, so speaking of speaking of um, of kind of. Um, uh, pies or, or, you know, mm -hmm. pizzas. One of the things that I think a lot of people may not know about deeply is the sheer volume of savory pies from mm -hmm. Liguria. Now I was reading in the book about the Easter pie, but there's lots of them. So. And see, because with the same pasta dough with, that we use for making focaccia al formaggio. So this uh, very elastic and even a dough, uh, which we call pasta matta, crazy dough. Don't know why, pasta, pasta matta. matta. Uh, we stretch this dough and we stuff it with vegetables. And uh, usually our savory pies are made of three different layers of dough in at the base. Then we put the stuffing and like a, like a pie. And then we cover it with other three, four very thin layers that when they, the, 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 the pie bakes, uh, they become uh, uh, cr not crunchy and um, they become uh, flaky. So it's like a puff pastry, though it's not puff pastry. And, and the stuffing uh, is made of vegetables and cheese and, uh, and eggs for binding everything and fresh herbs. And the, the, this is the pattern. And then the vegetables changes. So we can have uh, made with Swiss chards or with pumpkin or with zucchini and uh, or with potatoes and the, the potatoes is bachocca so each of them has a different name according to the stuffing that you put inside and the most famous probably is torta pasqualina the easter pie uh, which is made with chards and uh, sometimes as a cheese we use ricotta or we use a special cheese that is almost unknown everywhere in italy uh, it is called prescinsea and prescinsea is a fresh cheese in something in between ricotta and yogurt which is sour and um, an acid, and it is used for cooking, for, just for cooking most of the time. And we put it, we use it for these savory pies. And torta pasqualina is famous because it has wall eggs inside, uh, wall hard eggs inside. And these egg, these wall eggs are the symbol of uh, rebirth. And so this is why this it is the cake for Easter, of course, the rebirth of Christ. And torta pasqualina is very, very well known. But we have thousands in the in the West, for example. They used to add rice in the in the stuffing, mm -hmm. and we have the so-called torta verde, which is made with chards and and rice. Uh, some recipes provides for fresh vegetables put inside, like fresh zucchini and fresh chards. Other vegetables, like here in Genova, we uh, stew them before before 
putting them in in the pan and in in the pies so in the pie in the, in the dough and and baking it so huge varieties of uh, of savory pies yes we could i could write a book on savory pies maybe next project do so <laughs> please do <laughs> <laughs> maybe next project <laughs> but all all of them are stuffed with vegetables some coupled with rice but no meat so it's uh, it's difficult to find meat as other pies in other uh, even European regions where you can find these pies, meat pies, uh, shepherd pies. You know, uh, we just have vegetables inside. Well, when you mentioned about stuffing, and this this is something that I read in the book, is that the is it true that Liguria is kind of unique in the fact that there's stuffing and where you roll meat in stuffing, you put stuffing in mussels. Is that something that's unique, uniquely for Genoa, or we? It's unique for Liguria. We uh, sometimes we 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 say that the, we are the we have the we have the capital of stuffing. So we, but in Liguria itself, we stuff everything. So we stuff the pies, we stuff the pasta with the ravioli, um, we stuff vegetables, uh, any kind of vegetables. We find a way of stuffing them and then baking. We stuff mussels, we stuff anchovies, we stuff peaches. Uh, we we stuff meat with meat, uh, so we tend to stuff everything. But this uh, way of stuffing is uh, um, is one of the uh, technique of the so-called cucina povera. So people with few ingredients could uh, balance them in different ways to get different dishes. And uh, stuffing is a way of reusing leftovers, leftovers mm-hmm. of meat, leftover of stale bread, leftover of uh, uh, potatoes, leftovers of other vegetables. So, so in this way of reusing and uh, re- the same ingredients many times so with just changing maybe the fresh herbs or, or these spices, though we do not use many spices, many fresh herbs, or the um, the amount of ingredients inside the recipe, you get different dishes. And that is the, I would say, one of the special things of, uh, of our arte dell'arrangiarsi, mm. of way of make it with what you have. Yeah, very much so. And that makes sense. It really does. Oh, and because one of the things I was reading about the, you know, the stuffing of the mussels, and this is actually, I want to kind of touch now a bit on the, the fish. We talked about anchovies. We talked about mm-hmm. uh, things. The, I like mussels a great deal. And there's a, there's a uh, recipe for mussels marinara in there, as well as the stuffed mussels. Is this? Do you find that that mussels and anchovies are are the predominant uh, seafood that are made, or or? But, uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> Giovanni said nothing. Uh, yes and no. So the of course anchovies are the most. Uh, the the big the, the, the most famous or let's say uh, fish but not famous because we have huge schools of uh, uh, anchovies uh, arriving in our seas uh, in the from from May to uh, September and so of course uh, anchovies were a great deal in uh, and really a source of uh, seafood in uh, in Liguria. Uh, mussels, mussels are not that traditional because the uh, production of mussels started in uh, in uh, La Spezia at the beginning of the 1900, 1930. Oh, really? Yes, and it was uh, um, 
a person from the south. I don't actually I'm not sure if it was from Sicily or from Calabria, don't remember, that he decided to plant mussels in the La Spezia Gulf because he found that the uh, special condition of the sea were very good for um, for um, farming mussels. And so it became uh, other uh, fishermen came from the south to La Spezia for doing that. And then also the, the people in La Spezia start farming farming uh, mussels. And nowadays we have a huge farming of mussels in La Spezia and in the in the east part of Liguria, especially in La Spezia Gulf. Uh, so they are traditional in that we have them since decades, but they are not so old for the Italian recipes, let's say, <laughs> because a, we have dishes that make big centuries. Uh, but they are, um, well, we, we eat them and we have many, many recipes on that, especially on the east part of, uh, of Liguria. And then we eat um, traditionally uh, tiny rock fishes. Uh, they were the, the food of the, of the, of the fishermen. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big sea breeds uh, or sea bass uh, that you see uh, on, on the menus of the restaurants, baked in the oven, uh, they are something that uh, start appearing on the menus when the tourists start arriving in Liguria at the beginning of the 1900s <laughs> from the north, spending their holidays on the seaside, and they expect to eat fish because they were in the Riviera. And so the Grand Hotel mm. and the restaurants start serving them what they were expecting to eat. So fish, big fishes, but that was not our traditional fishes because the sea of Liguria is, uh, is very deep, is not that catchy as other, fish, uh, other seas in Italy, and it's very dangerous. And so dangerous, at, at least for them, uh, and, and therefore uh, the fishing, the sea fishes was not uh, one of the main source of proteins in our uh, in our cuisine it was more common uh, uh, freshwater fishes they were much more common than sea fishes uh, in especially of course in the inland because there were problems in transportation and in keeping the, the, the fish fresh uh, but also the nobles they prefer to cook freshwater fishes uh, because they had their uh, uh, they farm their freshwater fishes in their gardens they had oh. the swimming pools which we actually call piscine, from fish in Latin. And in those, in those swimming pools, they used to farm their fishes. And so the, the cook of the, of the noble just catch the, the fresh fish from the swimming pool and the banquet is done without, uh, depending on the weather conditions or uh, of a very stormy and not catchy sea. So that, wow. that, that was the past world. Cool. Nowadays, of course, things change. So we can have... Uh, the best fish in Milan, probably even better than in Genova, and uh, and so it's we can have any kind of fishes nowadays here on our uh, fishmongers. But just a, qu- a quick and a little one. When she says anchovies in the United States, we think of a thing. Si. The anchovies yes, so. on the coast of Italy are delicious, even just toasted in in a pan. They're really good. See, si. you said it. They just don't look good, and so they don't have. You don't get a whole bunch of beautiful white flesh uh, oh, no. that that is good for anyone to eat and mild. They can be really good too, but the anchovies have a sharper flavor. But they're not like they're not like the anchovies on pizza. In it, no, because they really are good. salted. They're really they, are, they are another another product. Right, so the exactly. anchovies, the anchovies you are having canned, they are salted. 
So they are preserved under salt. So that's completely, they are cured. They are like eating fresh meat or salami. Of course, they are different things. So the anchovies that you're used to, are the, the canned one, they first have been cured in, in salt. So they have been dehydrated. They completely change their uh, consistency and their flavor. And then they sometimes they remain under salt. Sometimes they are put uh, under oil. But they are completely different products. Uh, the one we have and we are talking about here in our coast, uh, we are talking about fresh anchovies, which are fresh fishes, and they taste fresh fish. <laughs> so uh, the, the flesh is white and the flesh is fresh. And, and, and this is something I have to explain to my clients when they come for cooking classes. Because when I say, let's cook some anchovies, they say, no, I don't like anchovies. They have a but very, they have a have very... You, have you ever eaten a fresh anchovy? No. <laughs> I thought they were salty. I say, no. You had cured anchovies, they salt, right, preserve and right. salt, completely different things. Well, even okay. like the recipe you have in your book for the anchovies and lemon. Yeah. Completely, completely fresh. And I, and I think see. most Americans would look at that and they would just be puzzled by it, right? I see, of course, and, because they don't have the first, uh, the raw ingredients for, for preparing that. Yeah, yeah. Right. So one of, one of the things you mentioned before, it was about... Um, uh, meat sauce. And this really caught my eye because we had done an episode on Piedmont, right? And that is toco. So I, I was, I became fascinated by this, uh, this meat sauce while reading about this. So please tell us a little bit about how, how one makes the, this kind of meat tomato sauce. Um, Cause it, to me, it almost felt like a risotto uh, from Piedmont, mm. but maybe I'm, but maybe I'm wrong. There is no wine inside. Uh, okay, toco, that we call tuku in dialect. Uh, toco means uh, a piece. So toco is a big piece of meat uh, that we let it we let stew for three, four hours. And uh, so that the meat releases all its juices, and then we take the meat out, and we use the juices that remains in the pan to season our pasta. The juices and the thin pieces of flesh that just break apart during during the cooking. And uh, we add uh, to the big, we roast, let's say we saute this piece of, of, uh, of meat uh, uh, with some fresh herbs uh, and, and, and uh, with some vegetables, so fritto, which gives the structure to the sauce, otherwise we would have just water. So we need some uh, vegetables to give structure. Um, mushrooms, salted um, dried mushrooms, dried porcini mushrooms. They also give flavor and umami and uh, consistency. Uh, and then very few tomato paste, just a few for giving slight acidity and very few wine that could be white or red. It depends on the recipe. I do white. I use white. Some other people use red. Very few. And then we let it stew in water or in stock better in stock. If you made the stock the day before, that would be better. And you let it simmer, slowly simmer. And at the end, you get a velvety sauce. Uh, maybe you can uh, also add a few flour to make it a little bit thicker. And, and you season the, the your ravioli or your pasta with that. So what you get is a very thin, almost transparent sauce that has the taste of meat. That's fantastic. And then with the leftovers of the meat, we do something else. So we do meatballs or you stuff ravioli. So you, you use it or you just serve it sliced. So you use it something some, something else in some other ways. Yeah, it looked, 
from the pictures, it looked tremendous. It looks like it's it's a lot of work, right, to make it, but it looks like no, it's just... No, it's, it's not it's like... Very... No, that's not a lot of work because it, it really? bakes by itself. So, yeah. so, <laughs> so it's a lot, it takes a long time. It takes a long time, but you can do whatever you want whilst it simmers in the pan. So, no, it's not, <laughs> right. tough, it's not the tough work. It's just long time work. Well, it looks incredible. So, because <laughs> I, I enjoy I enjoyed making the brazato before, and this looks equally fun to make and equally enjoyable. See, 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 the principle is the same. And really, I mean, it's um, maybe the last, I mean, we typically talk about things in terms of a menu. I know we've, I, I didn't prepare for this, but I know that there are certain unique um, cookies uh, that come or sweets that come from Liguria. So mm -hmm. here I can go here to desserts. Oh, it doesn't work. Okay, it works. <laughs> so we. So one of the things I think most people know are the was it um, the canestrelli. 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 Thank you. But there's other things there too. Marzipan. Si, marzipan. Uh, so so maybe uh, educate us a little in ricotta fritters. So maybe educate us a little bit on some of the unique desserts of Liguria. Um, allora, the, 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 you mentioned uh, canestrelli, which are the flowery shape of shortbread cookies with a hole inside. Uh, then we have marzapani, uh, marzipans. Uh, we call them parzimali because we usually prepare them uh, on, during Easter time. And they are made with marzipan, so almonds and sugar. Uh, and and they are flavored with uh, bitter orange blossom water which is an essence very common in our cuisine that we, we see in many, many desserts that's very, uh, very popular in the traditional dessert recipes. Um, then we have pandolce, of course, pandolce, which is our sweet bread that we uh, traditionally serve on our Christmas table, though this is, that, that is a dish that you can have all year long. And that's similar to panettone, though panettone is a, taller and it has a long raising process and there's a lot of butter inside our is the poor version of panettone so our is a uh, shorter uh, there is no butter and uh, but it is always enriched with um, candied with the orange candied peels and raisins and pine nuts so and bitter orange blossom water uh, and that is very very famous and then uh, what we have um, we have gobeletti, which are uh, short pastries uh, made with shortbread always, and they are very tiny. They look like uh, okay. cups covered with a hat, and mm. inside there is a stuffing of uh, jam. Sometimes apricot jam, mm. sometimes uh, marmalade, sometimes custard. Uh, so it really depends on uh, on the village uh, where they produce it. And then we have bujie which are the fried pasta dough, uh, which is famous for carnival, usually. Uh, then what else? Oh, we, have many, we have many dessert recipes. <laughs> it would be difficult <laughs> to count all of that. That could be a whole other episode. <laughs> so, See, that could be another episode apart. <laughs> so this has been a fantastic journey uh, through Liguria. It really, really has. And one of the things I want to make sure that we highlight for people before we conclude is it's not just your book. Uh, your book is wonderful. And for those people, you, I, I purchased a book from Amazon. It's easy to get. You should get it. It's a lovely book. 
Um, but there's also the website, uh, a small kitchen in Genoa. One of the things I want to make sure that you could educate people on, Enrica, is food experiences and tours. So let okay. people know how they can get in touch with you. Sure. Through the website, you can find what I organize for sharing my cuisine and uh, my tradition with people coming to Genova. Uh, I organize cooking classes, uh, especially organize um, market-to-table cooking classes. So we go to the market and we shop the ingredients together, taste something, and then uh, we move to my place uh, where we cook a traditional menu. Uh, and then we dine uh Hopefully, if the weather so permits, uh, on my terrace facing the city. And that's a very nice experience to spend a half a day together. Uh, for those who doesn't like cooking but prefer eating, uh, just eating, I also organize um, food tours of the city. So walking tours uh, where we visit uh, uh, different shops, mainly old shops, because uh, Genova is a scattered of tiny old shops uh, held by generations for uh, cent decades sometimes centuries and so we eat and we eat street food we eat sweets and uh, we eat some cheese and salami and so this is a, a educational uh, culinary tour in the city of uh, two and a half three hours in the morning lunchtime that's very nice that, that sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> yeah. Also because I'm a little bit nerd, so I always tell stories and history backgrounds and everything I know about cuisine. So people end <laughs> be quite confused, no, because I give a lot of information uh, about the the cuisine whilst we walk and the city too, whilst we but, stay together. But I think that, but I think that's wonderful. Even in my area, they do food tours, and I always love when people mix history with cuisine, right? Where they where they. Okay. They, they put, they set you an environment, they kind of give you the culture and the history behind the environment, and then you dine, right? And it just makes for a wonderful experience. See, see, see. That really makes sense. That's a way of uh, discovering someone else's uh, culture through food, I think. That's, uh, that's an amazing way of getting in touch to other countries and other people. Yeah. Giovanni? No, no. This, I highly recommend both her site, and if you're going there, uh, it's more than worthwhile. I can't. I've not cooked with her, but I was astonished at how just the site itself is really informative. I wish uh, I'd been able to do that. Giovanni, wait there, for you. That was if you come to Genova, just one hour far from here. Well, so I was in Alexander Alexander and Alexander before you were born. <laughs> I think more or less. Let me know. Pardon. Amanya. Well. Enrique, this you has been a be. lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you so much thank for spending too. time with us. Thank you for educating us on Liguria. Yes. And, uh, really and I'll welcome. say it again. And those tricks. And for the and tricks. I, I, for I, the, the oil the, trick. The, <laughs> you like that. The, the, oil <laughs> trick with the, the oil trick with the pesto was super cool. That was really, really, really good. So thank you again. And, uh, it was a um, pleasure. Thank you so much. And for those, and please, for those listening, please go to A Small Kitchen in Genoa online and where you can find information about the book in order today.